We are in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And what we're going to talk about tonight is, um, it, it's a little bit to put, difficult to put into a nutshell. It's really worldview issues, um, the things that, that Paul's laying out for us. These are things that, that Christians, every Christian should understand this stuff. Like we all should know these things, but we don't all necessarily know, know these things. There's some Christians who might be believers in Jesus and they may love the Lord and they might love the Bible, but yet they have perhaps some sort of filters they view the world through that aren't biblical and aren't godly. And what if that's us? Like what if, what if I'm one of those people? You know, what if I'm viewing things in an unbiblical sense, my own issues or other people's issues, and this is causing me to make bad decisions, not even realizing that what I'm doing is not ultimately honoring to the Lord and helpful. And so as we do th this stuff, it might seem like um, the kind of thing where you just kind of go, oh, that's interesting, but not realize how foundational it is. And when you, when you drive by the foundation of a new construction, you don't stop and just look at the foundation. Like, wow, look at that foundation, man. That, look at that cement. How well laid is that? Oh, look at the corners. How perfectly 90 degree angle they are. You, you don't think of these things, yet everything else matters. I have a buddy who his job is to inspect the ground that they're, they're building on to make sure that it can hold the building and the structure before they even lay the foundations before anything else. That's kind of a worldview thing. The worldview is sort of everything else sits on your worldview. So uh, let me make sense of this. We'll start in Romans chapter 7 verse 1. It says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. Little, little side note, the, the audience that Romans is intended for are people who are familiar with the law. They're familiar with the Old Testament. They, it doesn't necessarily mean they were Jewish, but they knew the law, although, which means probably a lot of them were Jewish, Jewish converts to Christianity. So I, I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Don't you know this? The law is only applicable to you as long as you live. And then he explains. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's freed from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Now, let me first say this. People will miss the point on this passage. This passage is not about divorce. This passage doesn't mention divorce. This passage doesn't even have divorce in mind. It only has two situations. A married woman who marries another man while she's still married to this guy, or a married woman who hus whose husband dies and then she marries another man. These are, these are the two situations it has in view. It's, it's an analogy about a married woman. It's not a teaching on divorce. I, I just say this because one day, one of these days, I'm going to do a full-on go through the scriptures and collect all the passages about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of passages, and it's a big topic, and I want to cover that carefully and thoughtfully. But that's not today, because right now I'm going through Romans chapter 7. <laughs> and it really is not what we're talking about. So it's kind of a distraction for tonight. Um, so it, although I'll say in... in large part, the biblical teaching on marriage is extremely simple, but life is very complicated. And so when we try to approach it with the complexities of life, we should be thoughtful. Um, so that, that, uh, that can wait. And if you can't wait, then I say, go do your own study. <laughs> you want to, you want to study marriage? Go look up all the biblical passages about marriage, do your own Bible study, pull them all together and find out what's true. Um, 
so th this, I'll take this as kind of a teaching moment. I remember when I was working at a preschool, when I was in high school, I worked at a preschool, ROP preschool, right? A regional occupational program. They teach teens how to like work. And so I did a preschool. And at one point we were traveling with the class and you're sort of watching over a few of the kids and making, getting them from point A to point B. And Miss Marlene, the preschool teacher, she sees a butterfly and she stops and she's like, teachable moment. And she tells the class, class, do you see this butterfly? And then she starts telling him about the butterfly and how it used to be a different creature and how it metamorphosed, metamorphosized, metamorphosized. What is, what's the word I'm looking for here? Metamorphed. Metamorphosized into another creature. And then, and then she, and, and then she told us, and then she turns to us, the helpers, and she goes, this is what's called a teaching moment. Life is full of teaching moments. It's good to stop when you, when you reach them and to teach the kids something because it applies to what they're going through so they'll be more ready to receive it. And so I, I thought that was interesting. Well, here's a teaching moment. Sometimes we miss the point. You could read Romans 7 and think, it's, and think the first you know, three verses here is all about marriage. It's not about marriage. It's an analogy, right? What we have to know is the author of Romans and really the Holy Spirit is trying to build a case, trying to explain a big concept. There are some things that just don't fit in Twitter posts that God is trying to communicate to us. Sometimes we have to think in more than 160 characters. And this is what we're being called to do, especially in the book of Romans, in the book of Hebrews. You don't, you don't understand Hebrews because you were looking for random verses to pick out instead of trying to get the whole concept that it with a flow of thought and the, the major passages, not just a verse. And so this is a good thing for us to learn. It's a teaching moment, right? We should study passages, not just verses. So what is the point? What is Paul's point in Romans 7? He's saying the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. That was from verse 1. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And here's my, here's my proof, my example, my analogy. The guy is married to the woman. The, the, the law of their marriage holds until he passes away. And now she's free to marry another. That's The law has dominion over the man as long as he lives. He dies. It no longer applies. So he describes those two situations. The woman, she's, she's a widow. She gets remarried. That's okay because she is, quote, released from the law of her husband. Then there's a woman who's still married and she gets married again. That is not okay. That's called adultery. So this is drawing from biblical principles that death breaks the tie between spouses. And then we're saying here that this means something about you and me and our relationship to God and the law. So this is more than a Twitter post, right? This is, this is what might be kind of uninteresting to some people and fine, uh, but it's rather profound actually. So the parallel issue relates how we get saved and how we relate to God. Verse four, he starts to unpack how to apply this analogy. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We, we, we talked last week and, and the week before about this idea that there's, there's in Adam, we all die, but in Christ, we all live. Adam represented us all. So in Adam, we kind of all die. And then Christ represented through baptism. We go into the death and the resurrection of Christ. We positionally change who we are and how we relate to God. Our new head is Jesus. You know, he's my new representative. And so now here he's saying that through this death in Christ, we have become dead to the law. 
So Christianity here, through the body of Christ, it is based on the idea that Jesus' physical death accomplished everything for us. It wasn't just an example. It actually affects me. That when I put, I just put my faith and trust in him, and then that thing that he did impacts my life for eternity, forever. This is why Christians are always thankful and grateful because of these things. So it's real tangible benefits, not just an example. So we're like the woman. Our dead husband is the law. Our new husband is Jesus. That's the application. That's the analogy and how it parallels with, with, our, with our worldview. I am dead to the law. I'm alive and married to Christ now. In fact, that this is carried not just through one author of the New Testament. This is a, a constant theme. We're the bride of Christ. Read Revelation. You know, read these other passages. We're the bride of Christ. Jesus himself told parables about how he's the bridegroom. He's coming and, and we're the betrothed. You know, so it's beautiful stuff. So I have some questions as I read verse 4. If I'm dead to the law, how, how was I married to it before? I mean, this analogy about a husband, right? So how is it that I was married to the law? Well, that would be, I think, through sin. I think sin sort of married me to the law in the same sense that if I get pulled over for speeding and I'm given a traffic ticket, I'm now married to this thing. <laughs> I have to pay this ticket. I have to pay my debt. And it was my sin that brought me into a un, an irrevocable encounter with the law that brought that was going to bring penalty upon my life. This is a perfect parallel with my relationship with, with God because of sin. I sin, I bring uh, the consequence of death into my life. So sin and death, that's my marriage to the law. So in what sense, next question, in what sense is the law dead to me or am I dead to the law? What is meant by this? Well, um, one analogy could be this, that there's a, there's a death penalty. Now, after the person pays the death penalty, they don't pay it again. Like, you're dead. It's over. It, it's, it's, done, it's done for. And Jesus, who paid the death penalty for my sin, he stood in my place. He paid the penalty. Now, I cannot then have to suffer again for the things which he has already paid. The fine has been paid. So there's that. Romans 6 talked about this. It uses the phrase, as we're trying to... We're trying to tie together the things in the book of Romans so we can understand not just verses, but whole passages, right? We were baptized into his death, Romans 6 says. It says in Romans 6 verse 2 that we died to sin. In Romans 6, 8, it says that we died with Christ. So my death is to sin, to the law, in other passages of scripture, to this world, to myself. And then I'm alive to Christ. There's just this real change of life, of position, of everything. So then it says that we should bear fruit to God. In verse 4, at the end of verse 4, that we should bear fruit to God. This is then the purpose of my salvation. So I'm saved by grace, but I'm saved unto works. That fruit to God. I'm saved for something, not just from, but for. So our works, they're not those done out of fear. Like I'm trying to please God. So if I please him, then he'll take me into heaven. This is such a confused thing. I, I just want to like start over with a conversation of someone who says this. Like, well, Christians just obey God because of fear of hell. And you just kind of will look at him and be like, man, your foundation's kind of messed up there. Like, you're not talking about Christianity. That's not, that's not the truth. We, Jesus said, if you fear me, obey my commands. No. <laughs> he said, if you love me, if you love me, obey my commands. And, um, and that perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment or the idea that I'll be, I'll be tormented in some future time for these things. But God delivers us and then calls us to a, a fruit-based relationship 
of love and obedience to him. So we would say this, that if you're lacking fruit, if you're lacking works, godly works in your life, then what you're really lacking is a relationship. And the fruit is just a symptom of a problem. That sin is often just a symptom of a deeper problem in, in, in the lacking in my relationship. And even a Christian who's struggling with sin, so often you can say, you know what? Have you just gone to the prayer closet, so to speak, and just got on your knees and said, Lord, this sin is me breaking in my heart relationship with you. I, I need to be restored to you and deal with it at the root of the problem, that it really is relational between us and the Lord. I remember having, a, when I was a younger believer, having one particular guy, I'd see him every like year or two, and he, he loved the Lord, real just simple guy, loved Jesus, and he'd be like, hey Mike, how are you doing? I'm like, oh hey, hey Kevin, how are you man? And he'd be like, hey, how's your walk? And I was always like, uh, that's a really personal question to ask me. <laughs> and I always thought, I always thought like, oh, and the funny thing was that and I'm not saying that you should just walk up to strangers and ask them how their walk is. I think sometimes you have a place in someone's life to ask this kind of question, and sometimes you don't. It depends on your relationship, you know. But, but it gets right to the heart of the issue. It just gets right to the heart of the issue. Um, how's your relationship with the Lord, truly? Not in your fantasy realm. In reality, how's your relationship with God? And uh, how's your walk? Because if the, if the walk is there, the fruit will come. The fruit will come. And so... Um, sometimes I didn't like hearing that question. <laughs> yeah. So what then, based on Romans 7, what's my relationship with the law now? Well, I'm dead to it. Yeah, but but this gets complicated because I look at the Old Testament law and I go, am I, am I really dead to this thing? Like, what about the part that says, like, don't murder? Does that mean I can murder because I'm dead to the law? Well, of course not. There are certain moral laws, there are certain things that carry through that would be true for all people of all times, but there's certain things that are for Israel, and we realize that this was to teach us a lesson, a tutor to bring us to Christ, and now we can say I'm dead to the law. He'll get more into this in Romans 14, he'll actually address this topic. But in summary, here's how I treat the Old Testament law, as you're reading through it on your own personal time in the Word. I learn from it, but I'm not under it. I think that's a great summary. I learn from it, I'm just not under it. So I don't want to be the extreme of casting out the Old Testament as though it has somehow inferior. No, it's foundational. But I don't want to sit here and start acting as though um, Christ has not delivered me from sin and death and the law. Uh, and forget that as well. So I learned from it, but I'm not under it. And then in verse 5, as we continue. It says, For when we were weak in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. We were, when we were in the flesh, this is a, a past tense thing, right? I think he's talking here about in the flesh. He's talking about before you're saved. Later on, he'll talk about in my flesh as this thing that still abides with him. But when you were in the flesh, like you, like this is the, your position of who you are. You're just carnal. You're in the flesh. This is when you are not yet born again. You're not yet given a spirit of, of a right relationship with God. Um, like Jesus said to John, to, or in John, to Nicodemus, he says this, I'll quote it. Um, Nicodemus first said to him in response to the whole idea of being born again, how can a man be born when he's old? Remember this? This It's so funny because I've actually heard people say this in response to the idea of being born again. Um, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And I was just like, man, you got to read John 3. Buddy. <laughs> like, this, is, this is literally what he said. Uh, so John, uh, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which 
is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, Jesus is communicating about two births. One that's natural in the flesh. Water, you're surrounded by this water sack. You know, that's, that's what you inhabit for nine months and you're born. Uh, the water breaks and all that. And it's not literal water, but neither were they worried about scientific, like, like <laughs> it's not entirely accurate. Like, nobody's worried about this at the time. Some people just read it according to the genre of literature it is, right? But anyway, um, then there's the spirit birth, right? And so the spirit birth, sorry. <laughs> Stop laughing over there. The spirit birth is the new birth of, of the, new, the new born again thing. So there's really just two births. But some people, they think the, the water birth refers to baptism. So you have to be born of water and spirit. So now I'm born three times. I'm original birth in the flesh, then I have a water birth, baptism, and I have a spirit birth. So I have three births? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. So there's really just two births, your initial physical flesh birth, and that's what uh, Romans is talking about when we were in the flesh, and then the born again. Now you have a spirit. So this is, this is foundational stuff. It's not super exciting, but it's very powerful. So when we were weak in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused, which were aroused by the law. And this is interesting. Wait, aroused by the law? Did you read that? Wait, my sinful passions were aroused by the law? Okay, in the Greek, it's not nearly as strong as it is, as it is in the English. They're trying to communicate it, but in the Greek, it's just the word dia, where it says aroused, which just means through. Dia means through, like diagonal, like through, you're going through something. But, but there is a sense in which it seems that it's saying, Somehow, my sin met the law, like my sinful desires met the rules of the law, and I became even stronger in my desire to sin. What's up with that? What is up with that? And I think this is really interesting. It's not that they were created. The law didn't make me want to sin. It simply sort of put a magnifying glass on those sinful things. This is actually explained more when we get to verse 8, so I'll wait until we get there to explain it more. Uh, but let's keep this in mind. The law somehow arouses my, uh, my, my sinful passions. Then it mentions um, that, that these sinful passions, they were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Members just means body parts, literal physical body parts, arms and legs and teeth and eyes and stuff like that. So members just means, means that. That's very typical in the New Testament for members just to mean body. So it seems clumsy in English, but that's the nature of translation sometimes. I mean, it was originally written in a different language. We're trying to understand it to the best of our ability. And the fruit, it says it bore fruit to death. Bore fruit to death. Now, now as a Christian, I'm born again. I, I have the fruit of righteousness, and that's to eternal treasures and eternal rewards. But before I'm saved, I'm in the flesh, and I have my sins piling up, and they're bearing fruit, which is going to be more and more wrath, quote, storing up wrath, as it says in Romans 1. Then in verse 6, as we go on, it says, But now, but now, not in the flesh anymore, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. New concept. New concept. New worldview thing. Christians can view things as the newness of the Spirit, the oldness of the letter. This is two different ways of living and serving. The oldness of the letter, the newness of the spirit. I think this is like the old covenant versus the new covenant. And we read about it in Jeremiah. So if you flip, flip back, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 31 if you like. We're just going to read one verse there. But, but we're going to go back hundreds and hundreds of years before Paul. 
And this is, I think, what Paul had in mind. He sa- it says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah is the one that speaks of the new covenant. as So it was anticipated prophetically. And then Jesus shows up and he fulfills it and he gives us this new covenant. Here's the new covenant in my blood. And then we become born again, a new spiritual life. So here we are taking what people people would do is they go up to a friend and be like, hey man, do you know Jesus? And they go, oh yeah, yeah, I go to church. No, but do you know Jesus? They're like, no, I, 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 I have a Bible. But do you know Jesus? Like, dude... I, I'm, I'm a member of a church. I even tithe sometimes. No, man. Are you born again? And what you're trying to communicate is this. This concept of the old carnal life before Christ. The new rebirth. The new life in Christ. Not just new doctrines and new teachings, but a life in Christ that we have. That goes beyond just what words can explain. So we serve in this, not the oldness of the letter. And I think serving under the oldness of the letter is I'm trying to obey the Old Testament law and I'm constantly failing. I have a life of constant failure, constant disappointment. Constantly, I'm not good enough and I don't measure up. I'm watching these rules that come my way. I'm realizing that internally, I want to fight against them. I don't even want to do this. I'm carnal. But serving in the newness of the spirit is an entirely different kind of thing. It's really is from the inside out. The law comes at me and says, you should do this. And I go, I don't feel like it, but I'll try because I know it's right. But the work of the Holy Spirit in my life says, you should do this. And I go, I know, I want to, Lord. I want to. I want to. And it's, it's just a change. It's a change in, in the whole quality of the goodness that comes. So why would I need to be delivered from the law in the first place? Because that's what verse 6 says. Having now been delivered from the law. Because the law is for sinners. As he's explained earlier. The whole purpose of the law is for sinners. And you kind of, you kind of know this. But 1 Timothy 1.9 says, Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners. Now, if you have the perfect kid, perfect child, who always does perfectly all the time, and you're leaving the house, and you're like, I'll be back in two hours, and you're thinking of all the things you could tell them to do, but why bother? I have the perfect child. I'll be back. I leave confident that everything will be fine when I return home. But the number of rules you give your kid is in direct relation to how much you trust them. (laughs) Right? So the more rules, the law is for the sinner. You know, like the more messed up you are, the more rules I got to give you as I'm stepping out. And and you know, this this is proof that Allison thinks I'm really messed up when it comes to certain things in life. Because she's like, oh, oh, but do it this way and do it that way and do it this way. And she's right. Because <laughs> I probably will. I always want to be like, I don't need you to tell But I'm thinking, I do need her to tell me. <laughs> it's just truth. I don't even think about stuff. And then I make a mess. And Yeah. So it's true. Um, the rules are for the, are for the rule breakers. And the more breaking you are, the more ruly you need. <laughs> and so this is, this is the laws for sinners. But I need to be delivered from it because I need to be delivered from even my need for the law. I sh- I. Something's wrong with me that I even need you to tell me not to do this, God. Something's wrong inside me and the Lord's going to work on that. And also I need it to be delivered from the law because the law condemns me. When I see the law and I commit all these crimes, moral crimes against God, I'm now standing condemned and I'm like, I need deliverance from this. I'm like the guy who's caught red-handed, who's going to court and they're going to convict me and I'm going to get the sentence and I need some deliverance. I can't plea insanity. I can't, I can't say oh, I wasn't me. It's all proven. It's all right there. 
And so I need deliverance because it condemns me. And I also need deliverance because the law can't save me. It, it can condemn me, but it can't deliver me. Because once I've broken it, it's broken. Like James says, you, you've broken one, you broke them all. So I, I, I stand there, I, I like the analogy of the law as like a 10-link chain. And I'm hanging over the precipice of hell by this 10-link chain. How many links do you get to break? <laughs> None, man. You, it, you, you hold it perfectly or you break one and phew, the whole chain falls apart. And so, so is the case with the law. So I all have sinned. Um, as it says, uh, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain, Scripture tells us. And so Romans 8, 3, we'll get there later. It says the law was weak through the flesh. So though the law, in a sense, if I could obey it perfectly, I could work my way to heaven. But nobody does because of the weakness of our flesh. So I need to be delivered from this. The whole system's based on my brokenness. I wouldn't need the law if I could obey the law. <laughs> I wouldn't even need it. I would just do good. Um, the whole system's based on our brokenness. I got to get out from under this thing. I'm condemned. So how do I do that? I die to it. Just like the death of the husband delivered this woman from that marriage. Um, so the death of myself to the law separates me from this whole thing and I'm reborn in Christ. In Christ, I have a total death to the law, to sin, to myself, to the world. These are all different passages of scripture that unpack these ideas. And in Christ, I have a total life, a new life to the spirit of God, a new life of fellowship with the Lord, eternal glory. I will never die in my spirit uh, to a new nature and a new identity, to love, goodness, righteousness, to God working, not from the outside in with laws, but from the inside out by the work of his Holy Spirit. It's beautiful, beautiful thing. And if I just got to say, if you need this, you just need to ask. Lord, I've been laboring my Christian life under rules and rules and rules, wanting to kick against them, feeling burdened, feeling like it's not coming from inside out. It's all from the outside in. Well, then you need to be born again. And God will work it from the inside out. It will work from the inside out. So what then is the, uh, the newness of the spirit versus the oldness of the letter? The oldness of the letter, we just talked about that. And you, and you can see why we need to get out from under that <laughs> because, because we're lame. <laughs> we can't make it. Um, so the newness of the spirit, this is not feelings-based. Walking in the newness of the spirit, living your life in the spirit, is not, does not mean that at every moment you're led by urges from the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not discounting that the Holy Spirit can in fact give you leading and guiding at any moment. That can happen. But... There's are, there are frequent times where you're not aware that the Holy Spirit's giving you any kind of specific direction and you can still be walking in the Spirit because you're walking in the goodness of God and walking out love in your life. So we're not necessarily led by urges. God can do this and we shouldn't discount it, but I don't see that as normal. I don't expect, as I'm driving on my way home, to have the Holy Spirit tell me to take a, a left instead of a right. I don't expect, as I wake up tomorrow morning, to just know exactly what God wants me to do at that moment. Um... I think God wants us to make decisions. If he didn't want us to make decisions, he would not have written the book of Proverbs. He's like, forget wisdom, just do what I say. <laughs> we need wisdom because we do make choices and God wants us to, just like you would want your children to make actual choices in life. So that's not, that's not newness of the spirit. It's not necessarily a feelings-based or urge-based living. It's not gift-focused. It's not necessarily like, okay, speaking in tongues or gift of prophecy or these types of things. That's, there's an element of that, but this is like on the side kind of compared to our normal daily life. Most of your life is not exercising clear clear gift things in your most of your daily life. It's, it's basically being led by the Spirit in the sense of these new internal desires and internal awareness of relationship with God and desire to serve Him. 
That's the difference. This is the first thing you notice when you actually get saved, if, especially if you get saved at an older age when you have really were able to flesh out the flesh, so to speak. And you're like, I know exactly what the flesh life is about. And you get saved and you're like, Lord, I, I love you. I know you. I want to walk in you and with you. That's the newness of the Spirit. That's the newness of the Spirit. So it's how we serve, how we serve. Um, but some misuse these terms, the oldness of the letter and the newness of the Spirit. And I just want to guard us against this. Some think that the oldness of the letter means anything that the generation before me used to do as Christians, right? So like if they sang hymns and I don't like hymns, well then hymns is the oldness of the letter. Man, you're like old wineskins, right? And, and they use and abuse these biblical terms to just attack whatever some generation before them did. Um, and uh, others, it would be the, the newness of the spirit would be like, just a certain vibe you have. Like in Calvary chapels, we tend to dress down instead of up. And if somebody shows up and they're wearing like a three-piece suit and they're going to preach in their three-piece suit, you're like, man, that's the oldness of the letter. No, there's nothing to do with anything. It's just a three-piece suit. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Wear what you want. You know, you dress down, you just have a different uniform. That's all. That's all it is. And so um, the newness of the spirit, some people misuse that term to mean anything that they feel good about. H have you caught this? And this, this can actually lead them to be a little confused. Just anything they feel good about. If there's a ministry they like, man, then the Spirit's moving in that ministry because I like them, so there must be the Holy Spirit. And it can be, or maybe you just like them because they look like you, <laughs> or they talk like you, or you met the guy and he made you feel good, so it must be a good And maybe not the newness of the Spirit. It's, um, it's not new stuff or old stuff. Oldness of the letter is the carnal pre-Christ life. Newness of the spirit is the born again, walking with Jesus life. That's the difference. So it's positional. One was from the outside in, one's from the inside out. All right, so verse seven, having uh, beat that to death, let's move on. Um, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Some people might misunderstand the law. They think, is the law sin? What shall we say? Is it sin? Well, of course it's not. They might think the law is bad, or the law is actually the problem. And, and here, I think Paul's not just talking about the Old Testament law. I think he's talking about whatever law has been revealed to you, whether it's moral law, like the Gentiles have proving within themselves they have. It says in Romans chapter 1 and 2. Or if it's talking about the, the, the more clear and more exact laws that we have in the scriptures. Either way, he uses the term seems both ways. But something bad happens when the law meets my sin nature. And you can see this in real life. Because what happens when people meet what paint signs? That's what happens when the law meets your sin nature. You walk up and it says wet paint. And you're like... It is wet. <laughs> that's, that's our sin nature. Now, do I blame the wet paint sign? Some people do. Some people do. Well, you shouldn't have put a wet paint sign up. And, and I imagine the guy that keeps painting benches, poor guy, whoever you are, we all feel bad for you. Well, I guess he's not out of a job. He just keeps going back and repainting. I imagine he's like, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't put the sign up. You sit on it, get the whole thing all over you. I put the sign up, you put little marks all over it. Is the sign bad? Is the law bad? No, the law is not bad. Let's not blame the wet paint sign. The issue is this. 
I have sin nature. I have sinful desires. And when someone tells me not to do something, I find out how much I want to do it. So the law exposes my sin nature. It draws it out. It draws it out. I, I know I had a kid one time, youth ministry over here. He was standing right over here and he comes up and he says, he says, um, oh, I have a joke to tell you guys, but it's really bad. I probably shouldn't. And I was like, oh, good. Then don't. And he was like, there's this guy. And he, <laughs> he starts, to, and he like can't hold it back. He can't hold it back. Because there's something in us that just knows, I just want this. I want what I want. And the more I'm told not to, the more I want it. The problem isn't the law. The problem is me. But this is what, this is how, like we said earlier, how the law arouses my sin nature. It's just, it accesses what was already there. I know that I'm bad because when I'm told not to do something, I want it that much more. So something must be wrong inside of me. Um, now, without any moral law, imagine if you had no awareness of morality of any kind, no awareness in any way, all you have is desires. You have no way of identifying whether these desires are good or these desires are bad. You just have desires and you just do what you want. And then when the law comes or moral awareness comes, now imagine you're suddenly flooded with moral knowledge. All of a sudden you can split the things you want into two categories, good stuff, bad stuff. That's what the law does for us. And then it reveals to us, I have a lot of these desires that fit in the wrong category. And that's not good. So the law reveals to me I have bad desires and it reveals to me that these things, when I do try to resist them, they're very strong indeed. And it's very unfortunate. And it becomes uh, where I, I cry out, Lord, deliver me. As we'll get there at the end of chapter 7 uh, next time. <laughs> Verse 9, it says, um, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now this, this I find to be a really interesting verse. Not only is it carrying through the same you know, foundational teaching about who we are and our nature as humans and all that sort of thing, but what does he mean that he was alive once without the law, but the commandment came, sin revived, and he died? To my knowledge, the best thing he could mean, um, or the most clear thing to me, I think, could be wrong here, but my opinion is that this passage is talking about a sense of age of accountability. There was a time in his life where he became a morally aware. And he realized that he was not, he's not a good person. The commandment came. His moral awareness came. And then sin fought against that, as it, as it always does. When you tell it not to, it says, I want to. And he became aware of this. So there's not much in the scripture when it comes to the, the idea of, um, like, are babies really, truly innocent? I mean, obviously, they've not committed any, any actual sins of the kind that we can imagine because it's not like they're conceptualizing sin. You know, they're just born. They're screaming because they're, like, cold or hungry or something like that. But they're not, like, thinking lustful thoughts or many thoughts at all <laughs> at this point in time. So, so I, I, I've always tended to lean towards the idea that, that children, it would seem to me, on my own human understanding, was that they would seem to be innocent not by virtue of not having sin nature, but by virtue of simply having never had opportunity to play out these things in any way, shape, or form. Um, David, King David, talks a little bit about this because he has a son who dies. And I won't get into the whole story. You probably know it. But, but he says this. He says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now that can be kind of, you might think that's a little bit vague. I'll go to him, but he won't come back to me. Um, did David just mean I'll go to the grave? But David had hope about a life beyond the grave. Read the Psalms. 
he knew he'd be eternally with the Lord. He'd be in the presence of God forever. And so he thinks he can go to his son. So he thinks his son is in the presence of the Lord or, or is in somehow in some sort of comfort or some sort of, you know, good place, so to speak. Um, now, you could, you could find a way around that, but I would say that that's sort of something very comforting, I think. And I think for a lot of parents who've lost a child as well. I sure hope so. I sure hope that this, this verse helps support the idea of the, in, the innocence of infants by virtue, not of having no sin nature, but of, by of, of having no opportunity to play it out in the first place. Um, and I think that ultimately, though, we know God is just and God is good. And he'll do, the, he'll do the perfect thing. From eternity back, I will look and say, yes, God, amen to that. That was perfect. That was the perfect thing you did. But I think that this verse helps support that idea somewhat. Um, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived. And I died. Interesting. Interesting. Um, verse 10. Then the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. How was it to bring life? Well, when he gave the law to Israel, he says to them, do this and you shall live. The commandment is to bring life. I'm giving you ways of life. It's to bring life. And it was to bring life, but because he disobeyed it, he found it to bring death. So the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. I think that there can be an application here, <laughs> by analogy, into, um, into the issue of gluttony. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. Sin, used the commandment to kill you. So there's a desire in my heart to just eat and eat and eat and eat. I just want to eat the world, you know? And then so I, I, I keep consuming things that are inappropriate, too much, too much, too much. And then eventually it kills me. The very, the very laws about why I was eating food, because it nurtures and it brings nutrition and it, and it tastes good, ends up being the thing, those same laws, those same rules about nutrition are the same reasons why it ends up killing me when I later you know, get diabetes or get some other, uh, whatever ailment comes from me eating too much. And then I pass away. And so th this is the case though for all of humanity because there are moral laws we've broken and by, by it, in a sense, the law is like this, like this, this knife, you know, it can heal or it can kill. And when I hand it to my sin nature, my sin nature goes, thank you. And stabs me in the chest with it. That's, that's how it kills me. Um, therefore the law is holy and the commandment, holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might be, become exceedingly sinful. And this is where we're going we're gonna to end tonight on this concept. Paul is, he's driving in, and the Holy Spirit is driving in this concept, sin is exceedingly sinful. This is where our Christian worldview needs to be grounded. We have to realize that sin is actually very bad. There aren't white lies. There's just lies. And are some lies worse than others? Absolutely. But we have to wage every lie as being a pretty seriously bad thing. Are some sins worse than others? Absolutely they are. Absolutely they are. Would you rather me stab you once or 53 times? Well, I'll take once, but that's still really bad. <laughs> they're, all, they're all bad. But there are, of course, variations. But what we have to do is think of it like this. Like, um, uh, like all sin is utterly, exceedingly sinful. Yet I recognize that some sins are still worse by measure of other sins. What we do is we say, because this sin is worse than that sin, then that sin must not be so bad. 
that is not a Christian worldview. That is not a biblical concept at all. I should view every sin as utterly sinful. Not th- now, this actually protects me from pride, doesn't it? Because I see sins in others, but I see some in me too. And now I can't wage my sins as being somehow lesser to the degree that makes me okay and you're not. But I realize I'm humbled. Sin is utterly sinful. It produces death in me. Like James says, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Um, so tonight's, uh, tonight's study, probably not the most exciting. But this is foundational stuff. And these are things that a, a Christian would listen to and go, oh yeah, amen, amen. But others would listen to it, maybe even some Christians, and go, I don't know about all that. Like, really? Are you sure? Because you're encountering the fact that your worldview isn't a biblical worldview. And you need to let the Bible change the way you think so that you can, uh, you can see the whole picture the way God does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in Romans 7. Um, we pray we pray this, Lord. Help us. Help us to see the world the way you see it. We need to see it biblically. We've got to think biblically in life because we might casually have really unbiblical views that impact us and impact our lives massively. And we just pray, Lord God, we appeal to you. Give us your word and guide us in your truth and let us understand things the way you do. Let us see the world the way you do. See ourselves the way you do. See sin the way you do. See the, the spirit the way you do. Lord, we just want to see everything like you do. We pray that you'd renew our minds. You'd renew our minds. And God, we, um, we pray for safety on the way home tonight in the rain and whatever weather we're going to meet. And we ask, Lord, that uh, you just you go with us this week. Bless us. Let us walk in your spirit. Let us, let us be really fully aware of what it means to walk in the newness of the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you elaborate on those verses that I was talking about using the law to kill yourself? Or yeah. Um, the law, well, sin uses the law to kill you. So if the consequence of, a, of committing a crime is the death penalty, then your sin, in a sense, when you commit that crime, that's the sin. It's using the law to kill you. The, the sin doesn't kill you directly. It uses the law to do it, so to speak. And what's the other side um, oh, if you obey it, you live. <laughs> yeah, so like, but if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't have a death penalty. And, you, and if you obeyed all the laws, you'd be walking in the paths of life and righteousness. But all have sinned. And so what, was, what, what could have brought life instead brought death, which is why I've got to be delivered from this whole system of the oldness of the letter, um, of earning my salvation or walking in perfect obedience. I've got to be delivered from this because I don't do it. And, there's, and he adds the element of deception. I didn't even talk about this, but yeah, the element of deception is in sin, where sin deceives me. We could look at Eve and see this. She was deceived, meaning that she really thought she was going to get good stuff out of eating this. She knew God said not to, but she thought it was somehow going to work out for her, like, but not for me. And we think we're the exception to the rule. We're like, I don't know. It's okay, though, because we really love each other. I mean, there's like, when we think we're the exception to the rule, we have to realize there's a reason for the rule, and sin deceives me. It tricks me into thinking I can get away with sin. I can be okay with sin. That's why he says, do not be deceived, brethren. Um, deceitful lusts, Ephesians calls it. And uh, I just, interestingly, I find that, like, people who, who go into sin, they, the thing they're going after it, after is usually the thing that they lose. You know, someone who, like, you have this young person who, they have broken relationships, they desperately want 
relationship. And so they get into quick and dangerous or even sinful relationships. And they're the ones who in older age have the worst relationships and the broken relationships and the hurt relationships. And so by doing it the wrong way, sin deceived them. The, the, the person who uses drugs because they just want to escape life. Well, while they're escaping, life is getting way worse because of drugs. So they'd use drugs because they were trying to improve their life and it ended up destroying their life. The person who steals because they want quick money, I mean, find an old rich thief. Good luck. You know, the thief in the long run ends up in poverty. Um, it, it, it's sin deceives us. The guy who's, who's hurting in his marriage and he feels like a lack of love from his spouse and so he cheats on his spouse, destroys his marriage. How much love is he feeling now? The, the thing that he thought would heal his, the, the, whatever it was that was wrong with him, sin deceives, it tricks us and what we go for. I mean, the, the lazy man makes a lot more work for himself <laughs> through his laziness. It's like if you just think of sin after sin after sin where the thing that you're trying to accomplish, it fails you. The guy who's like at work, he's like, I'm not appreciated enough, so I'm not going to work as hard. You'd be like, well, that'll make you more appreciated. <laughs> You're the guy that's going to get passed over for promotions and all that because you're discontent. You don't, you don't, you don't do what the Bible says: be diligent and work hard. But the guy who's like, I'm just going to work hard no matter what, whether anybody notices me or not. Everybody notices that. <laughs> so it's just inter- it's interesting how it works, you know. A person who's who's wanting love so much from others that they end up being judgmental and harsh and cold, and they end up repelling the thing that they're going for. Because they won't just do what the scripture says and they put on love towards others. When I'm not asking you to love me, but I'm just loving you anyways. Well, all of a sudden, people love me. <laughs> because that's a nice guy to be around, you know. <laughs> and so it, sin just backfires over and over again. And then finally, the final result is it brings forth death. You know, the, the consequences. Cool. Well, next week we get to uh, talk about, or next week, sorry, two weeks from now. Oh, wretched man that I am. So that'll be a good study. 